Well, guys, I know that we recorded this episode a little while ago, and it's been a little while since we dropped an episode, but man, there have been some pretty significant changes in the world, right? Yeah, for real. We're all sheltering in place, and Jim is so old, he's even in the high-risk group for COVID-19. That, that's like a joke, but it's not funny. No, I have to funny. hide in my house and, and wash my hands with Clorox three times a day. Uh, so even in the midst of all this COVID-19 stuff, the one thing that has not really changed is the importance of racial issues to everyday life. Yeah, I mean, in fact, from a public health perspective, you might say they're even more important than ever. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I always hear people saying that pandemics are this, this great leveler or something that it affects the Pope and the peasant the same. But I just don't think that's true, is it? No. Uh, it's not true at all. I, I just read an article that came out this weekend called COVID-19 is becoming the disease that divides us by race, class, and age. Huh. In the article, they're talking about racism towards Asians or Trump's use of the Chinese virus term as a racial slur. Oh, yeah, of course. But there's big differences in how the disease impacts people in this country based on racial disparities that are built into our society. Disparities in access to health care, mm-hmm. access to high-speed internet for work and school, and oh. the economic impact of these job losses. You know, if, if you're starting with an economic deficit to begin with, then these just completely rip apart those who have already been disadvantaged by the racial structure of our society. Well, mm-hmm. h- hearing you say that, it sounds like we could use a, a lesson on personal and structural racism. Well, you know, guys, it just so happens we have an expert lined up to speak with us about that. Let's get what? to it. What? Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm Eric. And I'm Joe. And this is Speaking of Race. So today we have with us Dr. David Embrick. He's a sociologist, joint appointed in the Departments of Sociology and Africana Studies at the University of Connecticut. Prior to being at the University of Connecticut, he taught for 10 years at Loyola, and he has his PhD in sociology from Texas A&M. Dr. Embrick, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. You bet. And so, Dr. Embrick, your work centers very much around what we might call structural or institutional racisms. That's a topic that we have alluded to quite a lot on this podcast, but have never talked about directly. So I'm really excited that you're here to talk with us about this today. Since we haven't talked about this very much on the podcast, can we start out just by defining these concepts? So how would you explain something like institutional and structural racisms to someone who had never heard of those? Sure. I think, you know, when we're talking about structural racism, we're really talking about systems of oppression. We're talking about a system, a system in, uh, in which norms and uh, practices and public policies, cultural representations and the like work together to perpetuate existing racial inequities. Um, when we talk about institutions, we're really talking about a part of a system, right? So we're talking about, you know, at the meso level, these organizations with purposes, such as an institution of education or religion or business or military or government. When we're talking about institutional racism, we're talking about those policies and practices, those racial mechanisms within those organizations that perpetuate and help reinforce white supremacy. And I think the difference between, say, how we sort of think about racism at the individual level, we tend to conflate the individual level racism or individual level prejudice with sort of structural and institutional racism. And so partialing out those two is is really important. Can you say a bit more about that last part there about 
how people tend to conflate interpersonal racisms with institutional and structural racism? Sure. I mean, for, for a sociological point of view, at least uh, since the 1980s on, most sociologists sort of look at racism as structural, right? And as institutional, mm-hmm. not, not as uh, at the individual. So we think about individuals as attitudes, right? As prejudice and not as racism. Racism is about systemic oppression, right? It's about sort of systems of oppression, right? And so if you think of them as one and the same, then there are going to be repercussions. If you think of individuals as racist, and we ask the question, well, how do we sort of get rid of racism? Then the answer becomes sort of an individual level answer. So we get rid of racism through time. Well, it's our grandparents' faults, as a, you know, grandmothers and grandfathers. So we give time for them to pass away because the youth or the progressive folks we do it through education, Mm. right? Education becomes this big idea about how we can sort of teach tolerance or how we can sort of teach context or how we can sort of teach history and hope that people sort of change their attitudes. It makes it hard for us to talk too, right? Because when we call people racist, you know, one of the first things that comes into folks' minds is they sort of think of the extreme, right? So I'm like, you know, you're racist. They look at me and, Mm -hmm. and, and be like, how dare you? Because in their mind, they're like, you know, the visual may be like a KKK member and they may be saying, I'm not that. And then we have these conversations about, well, are you racist light or are you opaque racist or like, you know, are you some sort of silly variation, right? If we think about structural racism, it forces us to think about, well, you're socialized into a system that teaches you about how race operates, the racial logics of the system itself, right? That gets perpetuated. And so it also requires us to think about dismantling institutions and dismantling the system itself, as opposed to to dealing with people. So it's a whole different way of thinking about uh, or going about getting rid of racism. I really enjoyed Robin D'Angelo's take in White Fragility about this issue, how you get past our concept, the lay concept of racism as being personal and at the individual level and get people to start understanding, get over their inability to be able to understand that racism is more than cursing in in racial terms or behaving in a negative way towards people. It doesn't mean watering down by any means the individual sort of bigotry that happens, letting people off the hook because people can be prejudiced against other people. And, you know, I mean, whites can be prejudiced against blacks, blacks can be prejudiced against whites, Latinos can be prejudiced against Asians. You can act upon that prejudice and you can discriminate, but there's also the issue of power, right? So you have to be forced to talk about, well, who has the power, the finances and the resources to be able to do that? And so you have to separate that out. It sounds really smart to talk about this in terms of power. And I wonder, you know, there are comments that people will make They'll say, oh, you know, I am an older white woman, let's say. I don't really have any power in society, so therefore I can't really be racist. What do you mean institutional racism? I'm not part of the KKK. I'm not part of any institutions that are racist. How do you, how do you deal with that sort of conflation between a person who says, well, I don't participate in any racist institutions and the notion of, institutional or structural racism? Yeah, how, do you, it, how do you bridge it that? It becomes complicated because the reality is that we don't just live in one system of oppression. We don't live in a racialized social system, for example, alone, right? We live in systems of oppression. And so we live in a capitalist society. We live in a society of patriarch. And so, you know, people have different positions in that society. You can be privileged while also being oppressed at the same time. You just talked about the idea that somebody could, in sort of one segment of their identity, participate in a kind of oppression and racism, but in another, be the victim of a kind of oppression. 
but then there's the bridge between people saying they hear the words structural or institutional racism and they just say, well, but I don't participate in any of those things that they would think of as racist, like the KKK or, you know, some organized group that is anti-black racism or something. Or the U.S. government. <laughs> right. And I would say you're still thinking about it at the individual level. So it doesn't really matter. I mean, we all participate in systems of oppression, whether we want to or not. You know, I think the analogy that I like to use a lot is, is I'm a cis male in a patriarchal society or society of patriarchies, right? I mean, I get the benefits of being a cis male in this society, whether I want to or not. I can I can play all day long about being, you know, as equal as I can be in terms of child rearing and my marriage and things like that. When I go out to buy a car, you know, people, uh, they treat me like I know what the hell I'm doing. I think I still get ripped off. We all do. Right. But I get ripped <laughs> off less than I think than, than, than sort of, you know, what? In society, right? It's the yeah, same thing yeah. as, as, a, as a white person in, in a society that gives privileges to sort of whites. It doesn't matter if you participate or not. You're not going to get followed around as much in comparison to sort of your black counterpart. Now, you may get followed, oh, yeah. uh, you may get followed around, yeah. uh, but that may be a class issue, right? Well, could I jump in and say, you mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, David, that since the 1970s or 80s, this view of, of understanding racism as a feature of structures and institutions rather than as a feature of individuals has been the way sociology views racism, broadly speaking. Could you talk a little bit about what precipitated that change? Because there certainly was, you know, around that period of time and, and prior to it, a lot of blatant interpersonal racism that was going on in the United States around the civil rights movement and et cetera, et cetera. So, so what sort of cultural shifts might have led to that newer focus on institutional and structural racisms? Prior to that, there were definitely a lot of scholars that thought about racism at the structural level. I mean, W.E.B. Du Bois, Ida B. Wells, but those folks were, at least in sociology, and I would say sort of academia in general, um, scholars denied. We get to, um, when we get to the 1980s, we see a book come out called Racial Formations by Michael Omi and Howard Winnott, and that sort of sparked kind of more interest yeah. in the state mm -hmm. as an apparatus that sort of defined what race was, right? The social construction of race and, and, and racial hierarchies. We fast forward until 1997, and there's an article that comes out in the American Sociological Review by Eduardo Bonilla Silva that talks about sort of the need for looking at racialized social systems as opposed to looking at racism at, at the individual level. So that spurred mm -hmm. kind of a, a whirlwind of new scholarship um, that started to focus more and more on structural institutional racism. I edited a American Sociological Association journal, The Sociology of Race and Ethnicity, and I can tell you, um, in terms of the number of submissions, the bulk of them are sort of looking at, you know, Eduardo's work, as well as uh, Michael Omi and Howard, not uh, racial formations and uh, Joe Fagan's work, et cetera, now, right, instead of uh, the attitudes. I feel, I, I hear you say that, and I, it sounds right to me, but at the same time, there's a podcast episode I was listening to just this last fall, so 2019, the interview is with Ibram Kendi, and he he says to the interviewer, you know, why is it that when we talk about racism, we're talking about the perpetrator and their intent instead of the victim and the reception of the the structure of the thing that's giving the uh, racism. And the, the interviewer was just blown away. And it sounds like even though in sociology, this might be just part of the field in the public at large, it seems like the notion that look, you are participating in structural and institutional racism on a daily basis, whether or not you intend to, is still kind of a shocking thing, I think, for people to yeah, hear. Yeah. It's funny you, you mentioned uh, Kendi, his book is right in front of me. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. 
But no, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the hardest parts about teaching about race and racism, you know, at the university level is that I still confronted with, you know, mainstream interpretations of racism at the individual level. So it takes me a long time to get students to sort of get over these ideas that, yeah, I mean, racism is about the structure. Racism is about the system. Racism is about the institution, right? But we could talk about prejudice and attitudes when you talk about individuals and, and because they're socialized, right? And institutions perpetuate this kind of notion. As a follow-up, how do you um, talk to your students when they, so you confront them with this notion that look for 20 or 30 years now, I've been talking about structural and institutional racism. And yet the student still sees this as a, whoa, that's a totally new idea. Do you have any tricks? Repetition. Threatening their scholarship. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it takes a while for it to get kind of ingested, but I, I really, I talk about, you know, we, we really need to stop thinking about people. So if we could just focus a minute on the institution itself, on the system itself, that the system is racist, let's talk about that, right? And so let's not talk about people because it's really hard to talk about people. It's not that we shouldn't. And I don't want to say that we shouldn't give autonomy to sort of what people can do and, and don't do, and especially what they do in groups because it matters. But the, the fact is we've always been talking about people. Yeah. We have all these beautiful examples on the campus at the University of Alabama of institutional racism. Right. You know, I mean, we have the schoolhouse door that Wallace stood in as part of the institutional racism preventing blacks from attending. We have the, you know, the whole history of the <laughs> it's in the architecture the process. Yeah, it literally is in part of the architecture of this. Yeah, but see that but that's how, that's what I want that's what I want students and I actually everyone to sort of understand, right? I mean what universities are really great at doing is pinpointing uh, blame on individuals so they can deflect responsibility upon themselves, right? So person said this racial epithet, and I'm not condoning it. I'm yeah. just saying that's that's horrible. That person, you know, needs to be challenged, needs to be punished, perhaps, but that person isn't going to be the only problem. And that's the other part. I think students sort of realize that at some point uh, we can separate out attitudes and, and people saying racial epithets or doing these actions from universities that have a curriculum that isn't that isn't racially uh, gender diverse that that has these existing racial yeah. uh, architecture and, uh, and things like that. Um, in 2011, you sort of got your you, you cut your teeth yeah. in the business world, talking about racism in the business world. Have you gotten to talk to people in the business world about these issues? Like, you know, my whole dissertation and work, you know, that followed was talking to mid-level management and above. I interviewed folks that were, you know, um, foremen to uh, you know high-level executives, executive officers, uh, chief diversity officers, presidents, vice presidents, uh, CEOs. How did they respond to the kinds of things you're saying? Uh, well, I mean, we talked about diversity in their businesses, uh, less less about structural racism, if that's what you're getting at. I okay, think, you know, yeah, in yeah. conversations uh, with, with any of these folks, I mean, it's pretty much the same, right? I mean, if we had the conversation about racism uh, or if it came up, it was really at the individual level. It wasn't about the corporation. It wasn't about the business, right? Oh, okay. So they, they weren't um, able to see, or or maybe it just didn't even come up, that the structure of the business itself might have been participating in the larger structure of racism. It didn't come up, but, you know, I don't I don't really have the answer to the reason why, right? I mean, it could be that they didn't want to. Right? <laughs> <laughs> sure, right. You talk about the um, diversity ideology maintaining a racial status quo. Is that part of the institutional racism of these corporations? Or how does that relate, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. 
Yeah, no, I mean, uh, you know, ideology is sort of a belief. So when I talk about diversity ideology, I'm sort of referencing um, the manner in which people buy into the ideas and beliefs about diversity or the way they think about diversity, the substance of diversity, whatever that may be. Um, the problem with diversity is it's so ambiguous. Uh, yeah. In fact, I would argue it's ambiguity that allows corporations to do all kinds of interesting things, uh, most of all, which is maintain the status quo. Uh. Yeah. And in fact, one of the interesting things I uncovered was just the plethora of ways in which corporate CEOs and, and management define diversity. I mean, it just became so broad. They talked about class. They talked about family. There was one um, vice president of human resources that talked about, you know, her company allowed employees to bring cats and, and dogs and pets to work. And that was sort of diversity. Uh-huh. Uh, no- talked about being able to, to have casual Friday, to wear casual clothes on Friday. That was diversity, right? And so it became sort of this ludicrous. The one thing I can't get into is sort of the intent of folks when they talk about these things, but they are defining it sort of very broad. Hold on. So are you just saying that people believe that because they let you wear jeans on a Friday, that that is somehow tied to diversity? <laughs> I don't... That is one way that you can define diversity, right? I don't understand. How do they even make that leap? <laughs> That's so crazy. Well, you know, at the university settings, they do the same, right? I mean, yeah. for the longest time over the last, I don't know, maybe five years, I went around giving talks on um, diversity ideology at these universities across the nation. And the, and the pattern was pretty much the same. I would go in and, you know, most of these places would have a diversity or diversity and inclusion office. There was very few that still had multicultural and diversity offices. But these were offices, you know, sometimes they were in the back next to the dumpsters. They were short staffed, very few resources, and they were expected to deal with diversity at large at the university. And it's like, you know, um, and if you have people that have many different definitions of diversity and you bring them to the table, you bring 12 people to the table and you say, well, we got this small pot of money and we need to deal with issues of diversity on campus and everybody has their own sort of platform. You know, what ends up happening is nothing gets done, right? Nothing gets done. Yeah. And, and then, you know, they call me back the next year and it's like, oh, we got these problems, right? And so, yeah. you know, there's no substance to it. That's the that's the problem. And people sort of look at diversity. There's actually an article that came out in 2005 by um, Joyce Bell and Doug Hartman, um, and they talk about diversity as happy talk. So people think about diversity as equality. They think of like it, happiness, um, but they don't really know what it is. It's very ambiguous, uh. right? Have you seen any? Um, have you seen anything that actually works? Is there any change that sort of has teeth and gets stuff to shift at all? Sure, I think one of the one of the best ways to sort of deal with this is to stop using the term, or at least if you're going to use the term, engage in specificity. If you find yourself having for the you know three or four years student uprisings dealing with racial profiling and or racial incidents on campus, yeah. you probably have <laughs> you know you probably have a problem, yeah. race problem on your. That's a good signal. Yeah, it's a good signal. Um, and if you want to talk about caring about diversity, maybe talk about caring about racial diversity, racial inequity, right? Dealing with racism, right? Just be very blunt and deal with the term. But universities, they don't really want to talk about that. They want to talk about yeah. we care about diversity. We care about what's happening. We care about what the students think. And we really care about diversity. We're going to put money into diversity. None of that's going to matter. None of that's going to change anything, right? And so I think the engagement and specificity is one way that we can sort of move forward. So, David, one thing that we're really interested in on this podcast is questions of race and science, sort of the ways in which science has historically been parlayed into uh, giving legitimacy to and defending racial categories, Mm -hmm. and then the ways in which 
science as it exists now is is in some ways what you might call a white public space. And that's something that your work deals with a lot. And I want to get more into in a moment. But I'm curious about how diversity ideology in university contexts isn't working for allowing other people besides us white faculty members to be part of that conversation in teaching about race and science and basically sort of like on a broader level, STEM careers and people of color being very underrepresented in those. How does that relate to this diversity ideology stuff that you're talking about? Sure. I mean, it it basically maintains the status quo, right? So when you have, whether it be in the faculty senate or um, with administrators at large are talking about diversity rather than increasing the number of women that are, you know, in the STEM fields or that are faculty that are in administrative positions or, or when talking about specifically increasing the number of faculty of color, right, or staff of color in these positions. With diversity, you don't have to do that. Just say we need to diversify and that could mean anything. And I think we're starting to see a, another trend, which is, you know, this move away from diversity slightly into sort of more of one inclusion. And I think that's actually uh, can be more dangerous or probably is going to be more dangerous to talk about inclusion rather than diversity. Really? Say more about that, because we're talking about doing like actually revamping our core at the University of Alabama in order to focus on inclusion. So what what does that mean and how does that get dangerous? When we talk about inclusion, and I'm not saying that that inclusion itself isn't a great thing. It's the way that we use it. Right. If we if we talk about inclusion without dealing with the current issues of racial inequities that are present in the institution itself, we're really doing nothing but sort of putting a bandage on top. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, inclusion could be anything from that. Everyone needs to have the same access to pots of money, to resources. Right. But if 90 percent of the of the folks that work in a particular business is white, and, and then you have a pot of money that's sort of set up for recruitment and retention of, of women and people of color, well, the inclusion kind of, it could, right? It could disrupt that by saying, well, wait a minute, we shouldn't have these different pots of money. Everyone should have access. Oh, yeah. Right, you dismantle that, and now you have nothing because everybody needs to be sort of included, right? So we, we sort of uh, misunderstand the notion of equity as equality, and then we distribute all of our resources equally not recognizing that power is already not distributed (laughs) equally. The inequities are already existing, right? David, maybe I'm wrong here, but terms like diversity or inclusion end up becoming kind of like smoke screens behind which people can hide to avoid doing the hard work. Almost like a way of signaling virtue, like virtue signaling among people who want to appear enlightened and sort of like they're being progressive, but don't actually want to do anything about it. Is that... Yeah, absolutely. But you can also use it to become defensive, right? Because who is going to be against diversity? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It prevents people from um, going behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. So that the idea of sort of like smoke screening or, or hiding behind virtuous sounding concepts like diversity or inclusion reminds me also of um, something I've been teaching about lately in my class and something that a lot of your work focuses on David, which is this concept of colorblind racism that's another term that we haven't really introduced on the podcast. And I'm wondering if as an expert on that, you could sort of explain that concept to us and how it relates to the things we've been talking about. Yeah, I mean, colorblind racism is really about racial ideology, the way that we sort of uh, understand our ideas and believe in the system that we live in. So the idea behind colorblind racism or colorblind ideology is that we need to understand better 
what's going on in a world that we think of as post-racial, and yet we're faced with all kinds of data that may suggest that we're really not post-racial. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So one, one, one good example that Eduardo Bonilla Silva talks about, in fact, that's his whole book, Racism Not Racist, is about colorblind ideology, right? Sort of the frames mm-hmm. and styles and storylines that people use to, to help make sense of the world in which they live. One of the best examples that students really gravitate towards is this idea, the framework of naturalization. So we think that we live in a post-racial world, and yet we live segregated lives. In fact, over the course of time, we become more segregated, not less segregated. And in fact, if we look at some of the communities of color, right, we can think about hyper-segregation, total segregation from society in terms of you know institutions, but also social services and things like that. So how do we sort of wrap our, our heads around that? Well, the frame of naturalization, where we tell ourselves that, well, people want to live next to people who are like themselves, right? They have suggested that's not true, right? People want to live in neighborhoods. Overwhelmingly, everyone wants to live in a neighborhood that's safe, that their housing appreciates, that, you know, their kids are safe, they get a good education. No, Nobody in any, uh, at least the research that I know, has talked to respondent that's like, oh, yeah, 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 I'd love to live in a poor neighborhood where my house sort of sinks to the bottom and, and stuff like that, right? Right. Um, but, but this idea that, you know, well, how do we explain it then? Well, yeah, of course, people want to live like people who are themselves. And sometimes it gets, you know, it gets, it gets heavy. I think one of the respondents in the data that he uses actually said the phrase, uh, well, you know, you don't put uh, cheetahs and elephants together in the same room. They don't mix, right? And so it's natural. I mean, it's coming dangerously close to sort of uh, genetic determinism, right? The cheetah, like species right yeah, so you totally. get into that dangerous territory but that's how people make sense of the world right so they're like okay that's that's an explanation it's not about racism it's not about structural racism it's not about you know years and years of sort of legacies of racism redlining blockbusting those kind of things it's because we just choose mm-hmm. who we want to live with ah so when you say naturalization you mean this process where people say this is just a natural thing that everybody wants to to live next to people who are like them. Yeah, a frame, right? A framework for understanding uh, a racial fissure. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think we should end this episode right here, but I'm going to propose that we come back and talk more with Dr. Embrick on our next episode. What I really liked about this one is that it was a great overview of sort of like foundational terms in understanding structural and institutional racism. And the difference with personal racism, yeah. Yeah. So, Joe, uh, what are we going to talk about with Emmerich next time? Well, he's done a lot of interesting research on this. So I think next time we can sort of get into looking at the specifics of what you might call case studies of the work that he's done in these areas. In particular, the white space whole paradigm. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds good. I I look forward to finding out what that means. (laughs) All right. All right. Uh, On that note, I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. I'm Jim, the old guy. I'm Eric, the historian. And you've been listening to Speaking of Race. We hope you all are staying healthy and sane during this crazy time. And if you'd like to wash your hands. And if you'd like to drop us a note, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Speaking of Race and on Facebook at SOR Podcast.